This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You have probably over the last couple days heard and maybe participated in a conversation about a lawsuit that's been brought against the city by a 23-year-old from Mississauga. Now, again, if you know the story, if you've been following all day, you know the background of this. But if you don't, he was walking near or at Albion Falls two Februarys ago. Uh, In February, as I say, so cold, middle of winter, at around midnight, and slipped and fell and fell nine meters into the bottom of Albion Falls and suffered some admittedly hideous injuries, lacerated spleen and I think 30 broken bones and a bunch of other things. So for his pain and suffering and for other things, he is now seeking recompense from the city of Hamilton in the amount of 300, Hamilton and other places, in the amount of $390,000. This has led many people, and I've heard the discussions today, believe me, I've been listening and I've been talking to people and I have been hearing people refer to this over and over as a frivolous lawsuit. Common sense, people are saying. Common sense should have told this guy that he was putting himself in danger by being where he was and doing what he was doing at that time of year, that time of night, that place he was in. And as a result, it's not the city's role or society's role in general to be your babysitter. You're an adult. Make wiser decisions, and you're not going to fall nine meters to injure yourself. That's what the argument is. But it led me to an interesting question today that nobody was really able to answer. And that is, what exactly is a frivolous lawsuit? I don't know if this one is or isn't, but we hear that word all the time. People throw out the idea of a frivolous lawsuit. What exactly constitutes such a thing? Well, Rob Hooper is not only a local lawyer uh, with Hooper Law, but he is also the president of the Hamilton Law Association. He joins me now. Thanks for doing this, sir. Uh, Very, very welcome, Scott. Uh, Happy to hopefully enlighten you uh, in the audience a tiny, tiny bit about the fancy words uh, frivolous and vexatious that the law uses and gets thrown around a lot. Well, we do. We do hear those terms a lot. They get thrown out and for different reasons. Are they, first of all, are they actual legal terms or just slang that we use? Uh, It's funny because when you contacted me, uh, I knew they existed. And uh, so I did a very quick search and uh, we use them in the law. Lawyers use them often, uh, and they do exist. In fact, in two major places where litigation or lawsuits uh, are formulated or the procedure is formulated, being what we call the Courts of Justice Act, which is the statutory rules of procedure of how you bring a lawsuit, uh, along with the rules of what's called civil procedure, uh, there are specific sections that talk about uh, frivolous and vexatious lawsuits and how they can uh, be quashed and uh, what the courts should and can do about those things. So uh, they actually are legal terms. Um, and in fact, judges, uh, a, a quick review, uh, a judge who made a decision on a frivolous lawsuit looked the definition up in the Black's Law Dictionary and defined it as lacking a legal basis or legal merit, not serious and not reasonably purposeful in law. So um, there is some legal background to those slang words. So, and, and there is clearly by what you just explained, there is a legal criteria that may have just been the judge's words to try and do that, but there is a laid out criteria. And the difficulty though, Rob, is where this gets really interesting for me is who, de- who decides or how do we determine what is not serious? Because again, the people talking about this one today, a lot of people are saying this is not serious, but I don't know if it is or isn't. So how, who, I, I assume it's the judge that'll make the determination if it is or isn't serious. We can't do that, right? Uh, you're, you're correct. And, and I should preface my comments by the fact that I have no knowledge of this lawsuit. I don't know who the gentleman is. I don't know his lawyer. I don't know the facts other than what I just heard you uh, say in the preamble. So I can give no comment on that Fair enough. specific case. But uh, what I understand, there are two steps. Uh, and in fact, to make justice more uh, accessible and the administration of justice uh, for the public to, to feel like it is being uh, done appropriately, there are rules. Um, so they actually give two parties the right to do it. The defendant, so in the case that you're talking about, the city of Hamilton or whoever thinks they're being forced with a frivolous lawsuit can bring a motion before a judge who would ultimately make that decision. 
There's interesting, uh, in our rules of civil procedure, there's actually a rule, rule 2.1, that says a court or a judge on their own initiation can tell the parties that they think it's a frivolous lawsuit and um, they uh, can initiate that proceeding on their own and the parties then have to give written submissions to a judge to say why it is not frivolous. But I can tell you in my uh, 25 years of doing personal injury work and my straw poll around the office from noon today till now, uh, nobody um, has um, ever had that happen to them personally, although the, the case I referred to you to was in fact a judge, Justice Myers, who, who did in fact take that initiation to say, I think this is a frivolous lawsuit, so the party should tell me why it's not a frivolous lawsuit. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Rob Hooper, lawyer who is the president of the Hamilton Law Association, chatting about the concept of frivolous lawsuits. The word is being thrown around a lot these days with this story coming to us from the, the case of the guy who fell into Albion Falls. And Rob, you were just explaining that a judge can either by himself or at the request of the defendant determine that a case is frivolous and therefore throw it out of court. Does that mean by definition then that if a judge doesn't throw it out of court, if it goes to trial, that it is by definition not frivolous? It would It would certainly mean, Scott, that it wasn't frivolous uh, and be dismissed. It would still, uh, it would not... Uh, make an uneven playing field that the injured party would have the right to say, I won at that motion about frivolous, so therefore I'm going to win at trial. They would still have their obligation to prove that the uh, city or the municipality or whoever had been sued had made um, some error in law, whether that was they hadn't met the duty and standard of care on them as a municipality or a driver hadn't done the appropriate thing. Um, as an operator of a motor vehicle. But um, so I, I, I don't think, um, frankly, I don't think there's any risk from a defendant's point of view to take sort of the proverbial kick at the can to say, I think this is frivolous, uh, other than there may be some legal costs and um, some administration costs. But um, Well, what about those? That's, that's an interesting part of this, because even if a case was to be determined to be frivolous, and, and whether it's this or any other case, someone comes up with the goofiest thing possible. I read one... Uh, that someone sued, I think, a liquor store at one point or a beer store because he slipped and fell and sued the store claiming this was an act of attempted murder to wipe him out. All right, so so it's that's completely crazy. Nonetheless, even going to the point where a lawyer shows up at court for the defendant to argue that this is frivolous and have it thrown out is going to accrue some costs. Do judges typically, if these things are determined to be frivolous, make the person who files it pay for those? Uh, in in the general rule of thumb in the province of Ontario specifically, uh, you never recover your entire legal cost, even if you are the hands-down uh, winner. Uh, we have a, a partial indemnity or partial uh, payback of your legal fees and a substantial payback of your legal fees, but it is very rare. It's full indemnity. So uh, I think the real answer, Scott, would be that if you brought that motion, even if successful, there would be some cost to the defendant to um, extricate themselves uh, from the lawsuit. When when lawyers hear about cases like this, and there, I mean, listen, it's it's an interesting case for sure. There's no question that there that it is a talking point. But when you hear this come up, whether you know the details or not, you just hear the headline, or you hear the story about the the woman in the states who sued because she spilled the scalding coffee on herself, or um, the the lawyer in town here who uh, sued the city from a tobogganing accident. Do lawyers sort of cock an eyebrow when they hear that and think, "Oh man, that's um, that's interesting," or do they look at it and go, "Wow, that's interesting"? Well, from my perspective, because I, I do do personal injury work from the plaintiff side, I do the second, that's interesting. I wonder whether there's been a duty or a standard of care uh, missed um, by a municipality or by a corporation. Um, you know, uh, the, the interesting part uh, uh, from the McDonald's coffee case is it sounds like crazy headlines, but if you actually get the shovel out and dig a little deeper, McDonald's was brewing their coffee, you know, 10 degrees hotter in their drive-through to preserve the coffee. So there were all kinds of details that said the reason this happened was probably partially the person's fault, but 
uh, also what happened to her had something to do with what the corporation had done that was not acceptable in the industry. Um, so similar to things like the debogging case, which we probably shouldn't talk about since I was his lawyer on the appeal. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but there are things like that. So what, what comes to mind for me is what we hear maybe in the news or in the public or around the water cooler um, from a lawyer's perspective who does this work is, are there something I don't know or you don't know or the water cooler conversation doesn't know about, you know, there was a fence and there was a hole in it or um, whatever X is that was a standard or duty of care that would have been expected of the corporation or the municipality or the individual. Um, but if those don't exist, then then the word frivolous does come up. Well, you know, and the funny part is, Robin, and I mean, I come from a family. Uh, my dad was a lawyer. Uh, I know I've heard all the jokes. You've heard, I'm sure, all the jokes. Are there lawyers, though, yourself included, who will look at some of these cases when someone will come to you and you'll simply say, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to court with this. There's no, there's no case here. I'm not going to do it just as a Hail Mary to throw it out there. Certainly. I mean, I can tell you just generally in my office, we have an intake process. We have a paralegal interview the person over the phone. They give us facts. Two out of the four lawyers uh, meet. Um, we talk about whether we think it's a viable case. Uh, and if we do, we meet the person in, uh, in our office. And then we go from there trying to build the facts. And even sometimes after you start, you think, mm, no, these aren't, these aren't good enough facts uh, to warrant a litigation process. Because um, it is a drain on resources, both from the perspective of the person bringing the case, but the defendant, judicial resources. And so um, I think candidly, most lawyers in Hamilton who do this work uh, have a very good view of whether this things are warranted or not in the circumstances. Rob Hooper, president of Hamilton Law Association, a lawyer in town here with Hooper Law. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Hey, you're welcome, Scott. Have a great night. You as well. It's a fascinating one because, again, we don't know all the details. We certainly know the headlines. We certainly know the wrap-up to the story. We don't know all the details. And so throwing out vexatious or frivolous, I, I, I don't know if that's appropriate yet, but a lot of people are saying it. And here's the thing. From my perspective, if it turns out that it is frivolous, as I talked about last night, if it turns out that it is frivolous, I want those costs to be recouped because I don't want my tax dollars paying for defending this. If it turns out that it's not, so be it. That's why we have the courts. But I don't want to be paying tax dollars to defend against stupid stuff. And I don't know if this is the case, but if it is, I want my taxes paid back. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. New research from uh, Paris Descartes University, that's in France, in case you're wondering, says that we humans may have actually hit our maximum level for peak performance. Biologically, we may never be better able to perform than we are right now. We may have just peaked. This is as good as it gets, they say. They've studied all kinds of performances and sports and everything else and different statistics, and they say, yeah, we're, we're, we're there. We have crested the hill. We may stay at this height, but we're not going to keep getting better and better. Now, as I say, that kind of sounds a little depressing because we like to believe that we're constantly able to do new and wonderful things. Um, as I say, I don't know if it's all downhill from here, but it's certainly not all uphill from here, so they say. Does this make sense, though? Are they right? Dr. Martin Gabala is a McMaster kinesiology professor. He's actually the chair of the department. He's written a bunch of books. He studies the things that impact physiological performance. He joins us now. Dr. Gabala, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. Love to have you back. Um, any thought that you believe that these numbers are true, that we really are as good as we're ever going to be? Well, a couple thoughts. I don't think there's any question that the rate of performance is declining and, you know, the uh rate at which we're breaking world records is certainly slowing there's lots of reasons uh for that but you know i'm reminded i'm sure some of these similar debates were going around around the time of uh banister in the four minute mile you know was said it would never be done and it was impossible for humans to get there we're having some of these same debates right now of course about whether humans will ever break two hours uh in the marathon so yeah. i you know i i don't think we've uh we've peaked the other thing i was thinking of in reflecting on this was that for the vast majority of us, 
we're not we're not getting out of our optimal <laughs> performance. You know, uh, we just look at sedentary living and all of this. So while a few elite humans may be there, the vast majority of us certainly aren't. You are accusing me of not being at the same level as Usain Bolt? I am not pointing any fingers, Scott. <laughs> oh, feel free to point. <laughs> my, my workout regimen for the new year began yesterday. I've got some work to do before I max out at my peak capacity, let me tell you. You know, uh, I, would, I would say, though, there, there's some interesting research that has been done out of the U.K. just talking about aging. And mm. they make the point, you know, what is actually aging biologically versus what is inactivity and they took a really neat approach by basically analyzing world records of master athletes as they age, because they would argue these people are doing everything they can to try and stay in optimal shape. But of course, performance goes down over time. And so they've tried to make the point that that's actually the peak human aging trajectory. And most of us, of course, are far below that because we're not doing all the things we should to stay in optimal shape. You mentioned Roger Bannister. It's a fascinating point because you're absolutely right. For the longest time, humans could not run a four-minute mile, and he goes and does it, and everyone thinks we've now, as you say, reached this magical thing that no one will ever do better. Well, now, not we, I, I say we, we humans, not we, me. Uh, we're doing it in three minutes and 43 seconds, and the time continues to go down. But do you believe that we actually do as humans, even at the top level, that we do have a max out point that no matter what we do with training or eating or nutrition or rest or whatever, is there a point when we can't get better that our bodies are just maxed out? Yeah, I think at some point uh, we're going to get there. But you also think all of the various factors that go into elite human performance, all of the physiology, all of the training, um, even things like sleep, I think it's the rare athlete who is optimizing all of those things. And this is where the science meets the art of coaching. You know, there's so many variables there. And I, I just think it's unlikely that any single human is optimizing all of those variables. Uh, of course, it's going to be slower, this trajectory. You know, you look at the world records right now, the men's was set in 2014. Uh, the women's, you go back to 2003. And so there's going to be a long time, I think, in between these records incrementally improving. Uh, but there's just so many factors there. And to think that uh, one single athlete has optimized all of them is, uh, is unlikely. But you also, you know, it's really interesting. You talk about the science. And, you know, we hear, and I, this is not a climate change discussion we're having, but we hear the phrase a lot these days with climate change, the science is settled. Science, to my knowledge, has never been settled. And I wonder if 10 years from now, someone is going to find a new training regimen, going back to physiology and everything, that completely upends what we've thought so far and changes everything again. It makes everything even more advanced. Yeah, absolutely. It could happen. You know, a, a, a thing with all of these athlete performances, they're all an N of one. So the sample size is, is one. So uh, could Bolt be a little bit faster if he trained in a slightly different way? We don't know. So sometimes these world record performances, is it in spite of the training the athletes are doing huh. or because of, of their training? Uh, you know, I used to have a, uh, a physiotherapist graduate student who worked with a number of Olympic teams, and sometimes he, he shook his head at the nature of this training, and he said, you know, I think sometimes these, these athletes are just surviving the training. I'm not sure that we're actually doing anything more uh, to, to help them out. But it, it goes to the point you're making that, you know, we don't know what we don't know uh, every couple of years, uh, we sort of rediscover either something new, like interval training that's been around for 100 years, of course, or even things like training with reduced carbohydrate, training low. That's a very popular uh, practice uh, right now. This whole idea of actually restricting carbohydrate sometimes may actually be beneficial for us. We're trained to think, you know, yet high carbohydrate all the time, you know, drink Gatorade all of the time. Well, what the research is showing is actually if you, if you train sometimes in a carbohydrate-restricted state, they may, that may actually potentiate or optimize some of these adaptations. So, you know, it, it would be foolish to think we know everything, and certainly as my job as a scientist, it would make it quite boring to think we've discovered everything and there's nothing left to learn. Well, and of course, the one thing we're leaving out is the opportunity that people may, and that wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be right, but to use performance-enhancing aids, steroids, or whatever else, I mean, those possibilities still exist to bump it up a notch, too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a whole other debate, I think, should For we sure. open sport up to all of that. Uh, but I think, clearly, that's one of the reasons, certainly in track and field and cycling and some of these other sports, where the rate of performance enhancement has slowed, uh, because clearly there were, 
you know, other factors going on for a, for a long period of time, you know, many decades, of course, when it comes to track and field. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Martin, one of the things that was really, when I was sitting down thinking about this today, 1974, men's 100 meters, the world record was just a touch under 9.9 seconds. 1974, the same year, Nolan Ryan, the reason I went to 74, that was the first year Nolan Ryan ever threw, was the first person to ever throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. Since then, the world record in the 100 meters has dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped, and it's down to 9.5. We've almost taken a half a second off it, which is a world of difference in that race. But still, nobody is really throwing a baseball any faster than 100 miles an hour. Why are some parts of our body apparently still going faster and doing better and other parts not changing at all? Yeah, I guess it comes back to that complexity issue that we were talking about earlier. And some of these things were just we're just tapping out and, and, and reaching the limits of performance. Sometimes it comes down to the complexity of the skill. Obviously, throwing a baseball is, is a skill that's you know, highly complex, but you could probably break it down to a few certain things that impact uh, peak pitch uh, velocity, whereas carrying your body running down a track, maybe there's more inputs there uh, that, that you can improve. You know, the uh, authors of that paper make the point that we're probably topping out or reaching the limits when it comes to things like lifespan, height. So some of these physical characteristics we may be reaching, and they look at sort of worldwide data to make the point, and even in some African countries, uh, height starting to, uh, to, to diminish now. So some of these are, are fixed physical attributes, and other are more complex physiological attributes that have lots of obviously complex inputs. Without getting too, too complex, and I know you could if I let you, uh, but what exactly have we maxed out? What is it in our body that we are not able to produce more of or to generate more of while we're doing something so that we can't go faster and stronger and higher and all those things? What's going on in our body that we can't do more of? Sure. Well, certainly some things like heart rate, there's upper limits to that. There's huge variability between individuals, but that's you know, related to biological age. And, and so one of the reasons why performance declines as we age, especially in these endurance sports, is we're just not able to beat our hearts as fast as when we were younger. So that's a fixed attribute uh, that limits our, our cardiac output, the amount of blood that can come out of our heart, which is a critical determinant of endurance uh, performance. So there's some things like that that are quite fixed. Fiber type would be uh, another one. Uh, it's very difficult to change the proportion of type 1, uh, the slow twitch, and type 2, the fast twitch muscle fibers, and obviously different proportions of those are very important for various sports. And so those would sort of be two examples of things that are sort of fixed and, and often decline uh, over time. But coming back to something we opened the, the show with, you know, fast twitch fibers sort of atrophy they get smaller as we get older but part of the reason for that is because we never call upon them we don't recruit these muscle fibers and so i'm very interested in interval training one of the speculations for why interval training is so effective is the intense nature of the exercise recruits calls upon these muscle fibers it stimulates them and so as we age if we continue to recruit and call on these muscle fibers uh, we benefit from those whereas if we just remain sedentary they just sort of tap out, if you will, because they're they're never called upon to do anything. And you touched on it a, mo- a few moments ago that while the Usain Bolts and Michael Phelps and everyone else have maybe achieved the peak of human achievement, the average person has a lot of space from where they are to where they are. There's a lot of room for us to maximize where we are. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I talk to my students, uh, you know, something like VO2 max, I call that the ceiling, but it's really how close to the ceiling can you work for a for a prolonged period of time. That's what it is in most sports. And so for a lot of us, our capacity to reach the ceiling is actually quite low. And so when we do exercise training, we get a little bit better at at reaching closer to the ceiling or at least staying there for a more prolonged period of time. But you're right. Unfortunately, the vast majority of us, we really don't need to be worrying about the upper limits of performance. (laughs) It's really just tapping into what we're able to do. Last thing before I let you go, I know you got to run, but this is not just, I don't want to make this sound like this is just about sports performance. That's certainly one of the elements, but a lot of people figured that by now with modern technology and with nutrition and with health and medicine and everything else that our bodies would have, you talked about it, would extend in length, that we would have a lot more people living over a hundred, a lot more healthy with a lot more active at that age. We don't have 
tons of people making it to that age. And we certainly don't have people extending, even at the extreme ends, the limits. We don't have people living to 130 or 140. Why not? No, it, it, in some ways, it's a great irony. We've never known more, and yet we, we seem to be getting worse and worse. Uh, rather than worrying about lifespan, I think more individuals need to worry about something that we call health span. And that's this idea of living, you know, getting, getting as close to the ceiling as you can for a prolonged period of time. So rather than worrying about how long you live, it's more about the quality of life. And really, you want to live a high quality of life and then sort of, you know, decline rapidly at the end. But unfortunately, and, you know, with so many chronic diseases, type 2 diabetes, it really, it, it really restricts the quality of life. Uh, at a very early age. And so I think that's the takeaway for most people is what exercise allows you to do is maximize health span, maybe not so much lifespan, but it's really health span. It's living as optimally as you can, giving whatever your physiological function is for as long as you can. Dr. Martin Gabella, McMaster Kinesiology Professor, Chair of that department, author of a number of books, a uh, guy who's done some studies. We've had him on here before with uh, short interval training stuff. Uh, really interesting. Really appreciate it tonight. Thanks for the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. It is, his point is well taken. I am not, you probably, unless, you know, if Usain Bolt is listening or Michael Phelps is listening, hey, welcome on board the show. But most of us are not talking about reaching those kind of levels of achievement physically. But it it is shocking to me when this study comes out that says, from France, that says we are capped out. Forget the physical stuff. The length of life stuff, I thought a lot of people would have thought that even if we've physically been able to go as fast as we can, that there would be a lot of people living longer, that we'd have longer lives, that we'd have more active people later in life. I don't, that's not really changing, it doesn't seem. And certainly we don't have people pushing the outer limits of age. There is the odd person who lives to 110. I mean, that's really rare. And I think the world record is like 120 and that's, you know, nobody, there's one or two. We don't see people living to be 140 or 150 now. And I don't understand why we should, if everything else is capped out, but we don't. Science is a mystery. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Have you been following the bomb cyclone? You hear about the bomb cyclone? It's not da bomb. That's not what they're talking about. It's, it's the new, Weather word that everyone's talking about, the bomb cyclone. I've got got this image that somewhere at either the American Weather Center or the Weather Canada, Environment Canada, or Weather Network or something, there are people, they've got a group of marketing people, of advertising people sitting around a desk saying, hmm, we got a storm coming. We got some weather moving in. But we got to get some ratings for our weather people. we got to get people paying attention. What do we do? How can we get attention for this storm? I know how. Better marketing. We're not just going to say, we got a storm coming in, because who pays attention to the word storm now? That's just boring. That's old-fashioned. We're going to come up with a name that everyone's going to be paying attention to. Remember a few years ago? It's actually back again. Polar Vortex. We're not, it's not a cold snap. See, once upon a time, we had a cold snap or we had an Arctic front. Those were, you know, those were the, the old-fashioned names. But who's, who's going to have social media cold front? That's a boring thing to put on social media. Polar Vortex. I mean, it sounds like a heavy metal band, doesn't it? Like a thrash metal. I'm amazed, quite frankly, no one has actually started a band. Someone at work suggested this, and I thought it was absolutely right. Someone is going to launch a thrash death metal band called Polar Vortex, and everyone's going to be dressed in like icicles and stuff, looking like they're Mr. Freeze. But that did the trick. That did the trick. Everybody talked about the Polar Vortex. I mean, 10 years, 15 years ago, who talked, who sat down around the coffee table with all your friends and, oh, there's a cold front coming in. No one did that. But now, oh, what about the Polar Vortex? Ben immediately went into his air guitar with the head bobbing. Yes, exactly. If you start a band named Polar Vortex, by the way, I want to cut. A few years ago, there was a big snowstorm in the States. I can't remember where exactly it was, but... You know, big snowstorm is not going to get people's attention. That's kind of boring. We got a big snowstorm arriving. So they came up with a new name, the Snowicane. We've got a Snowicane. 
Again, a bunch of weather people sitting around a table saying, we got to do something to get attention. The return of Will and Grace is hogging all the attention on TV. We got to do something to get people to tune over to the weather network. Snowacane. Sounds like Novacane, but it's something completely different. And now, now, we have, now, it's a big storm. I'm not going to, I'm not playing it down. It's a big storm. And it kind of looks like a hurricane, the way the clouds are going up the East Coast. But it's wintertime. But we can't call it a hurricane, can we? Because that's confusing. Hurricanes mean CNN reporters standing out in their wetsuits holding on to a light pole being blown around while they're being lashed by wind and palm trees blowing over. Well, we can't have a hurricane when it's snow. That just doesn't, people don't understand that. And more importantly, we can't have, what's the guy's name now who's on CNN, the uh, Cuomo. We can't have Chris Cuomo out there in a tight, 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 four sizes, two small t-shirt showing off the guns in the snow. That's what they do. CNN, we're going to put Chris Cuomo out there to show how much time he's been spending in the gym instead of in the newsroom. We can't do that. And so we can't call this a winter hurricane. That's a boring name. Bomb cyclone. That's it. Oh, man. That is a, I hope that the person at the Weather Network who came up with it, who's sitting around as they were having their New Year's mimosas or whatever it is at the Weather Network office, and they were coming up with names. They were throwing out some stuff like, Snowmageddon. Oh, we had Snowmageddon. We can't use that one again. Snowmageddon we've used a bunch of times. That's the old fallback. Uh, we, we, You know, throwing out all kinds of names that they had. And then someone, you know, in the silence, because they've gone through everything, it's like Big Blast. No, Big Blast isn't going to work. That sounds like something else. Um, Snowpocalypse. Ah, that's been done. Something like that. And then out of the corner, somebody just perks up and goes, Bomb Cyclone. Bomb cyclone! Oh, can you just see the look on the face of the weather science nerds when they're sitting in that room and somebody comes up with the idea of bomb cyclone? This is the greatest weather term in history. Forget even weather. This is the greatest term anyone's ever come up with for anything. Bomb cyclone! What is it? I don't care! It's people will pay attention. We could call something a bomb cyclone and have four sending four millimeters of precipitation. They're going to be stayed to their TV. Why? Because there's a bomb cyclone rolling in. I love the idea of this. Of course, I'm acknowledging that we're all being suckers by being drawn into this by having the special fancy weather names. Everyone's tuned to their TV to see what happens when a bomb cyclone hits. But good for the weather people. I mean, look. There's only so many times a year they get attention. They, I mean, there's rain or there's not rain. There's wind or there's not wind. There's not a lot of opportunities for the poor weather people to really flex their creative muscles and come up with something that really is going to make us stand and pay attention. And so when it happens, they had the hurricane season. It was terrible this year. A lot of damage. We're not making fun of the hurricanes. But, they, you know, you only, you, what do you get to do when it's a hurricane? You get to call it by either a man or a woman's first name. That's not creative. That's not exciting. And it's got to be the next letter in the alphabet. Oh, we've got to come up with a name for something that starts with M. All right, uh, Hurricane Margarita. All right, well, we're done. We can go home now. Bomb Cyclone. Oh, whoever did that is the weather person of the year. Hope no one gets hurt. I hope nothing bad happens. But I'm just loving the idea of having a bomb cyclone, whatever the heck that is. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy who has already done three hours of radio today. So uh, I don't know how his voice is going to be. But um, his name is Rick Zamperin. He was on for Bill Kelly. He's on all week for Bill Kelly this week. Doing a terrific job, Rick. Bill should be fearful of his career. I don't think he has anything to worry about. <laughs> you are doing a great job, though. It's been great shows. i got to tell you, the one thing I've loved about the past couple days, you guys have literally covered every single thing on the map. Well, yeah, I, I try to make it diverse because you know, if you just go politics or if you just go lifestyle or just one kind of niche kind of subject, uh, not everyone is entertained, and I, I like to I like to spread it around. Although I will say, speaking of spreading it around, one of your topics today completely and thoroughly grossed me out. 
the idea of uh, naked workouts in a New York gym now, I, I yeah. can tell you the last thing I want to do when I'm working out is to be doing some sort of stretch right behind some guy doing a downward dog with no pants on. <laughs> not well, not my idea of a great day at the gym. Yes, this is this is Hanson Fitness in New York, and the, and the first class is tomorrow, so you have time to sign up. Oh, I, the, uh, the 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 uh, bomb cyclone will prevent me from getting there, but <laughs> yes, very true. <laughs> uh, thank goodness for that too. That is, I do not want to see that. I'm telling you. But anyway, yeah. some people will find it wondrous. Too much, I hope so. Too much sweat in too many places that I do not want to be around. Anyway, let us move yeah. along before people get completely grossed out. I want to play. I want to give you a question. And I want to see if you can answer this question before we get going here tonight. It's a sports question. I'm going to give you three names. You have to tell me what these three names have in common. All right? Okay. Yep. Chad Billens. Not Billings. Billens. Chad Billens. Ryan Gunderson. And Brock Little. Any idea what those three names have in common? They are, uh, and this is a shot in the dark because... I, I think I might know where you're going. I think these are three Canadian hockey players who are going to be playing in the Olympics, but not for Team Canada. Uh, you're you're very, very close. I was going to throw in Garrett Rowe or Jim Slater or Chad Kolarik or Ryan Donato. Shall I keep going? Ryan Stoa, Troy Terry, Noah Welch, Ryan <laughs> Zapolsky. This is your U.S. men's Olympic hockey team, Rick. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, will you be setting your alarm for 3.30 in the morning to get up in a Wednesday morning to watch these guys play against South Korea in the Olympics? I am not even going to set my PVR <laughs> so I can watch it later so I can watch these. No, not at all. This strike, well, it's no surprise that today they had a press conference at the World Junior Tournament, which is turning into a bit of a disaster attendance-wise anyway. And Rene Fassel, who's the head of the IIHF, the International Hockey Federation. Uh, his quote today was, yeah, we need the NHL back for 2022 in Beijing. It's like, really? You think so? <laughs> yes. This is, this is, if, if the, if we're having difficulty filling the seats in Buffalo for this, uh, th- the attendance, the viewership, the ratings, everything for the Olympics, men's hockey has got to be a disaster about to happen. Well, without a doubt, you know, if you're the IOC and you are, you know, hosting, uh, you know, every every two years now, the the winter and summer, but when you're hosting events, you want to, uh, because it's on every, you know, major network really around the world, you want to have filled venues, whether it's hockey or it's beach volleyball or it's whatever, uh, you want your venues to be filled. Even if you're giving a lot of those tickets away, which they do, uh, you want optically it to look good because, hey, this is the Olympic Games. People want to come out to see these, you know, high profile athletes. The fact of the matter is that these aren't the best of the best that are going over uh, because the best of the best are in the National Hockey League. At least 98 percent of them are. Um, so the IOC, I think, has completely missed the mark. And obviously the NHL had a huge part in this. And I'm not sure how they're going to come to an agreement because the NHL has mentioned, listen, this is a, you know, it creates a major squeeze in the regular season schedule, uh, although they have done it in the past. And it, it doesn't appear that, you know, any of the athletes that went over to whatever country suffered debilitating injuries that their careers were over. Um, I just think this was uh, two individuals in, in Rene Fussell and Gary Bettman that, Really didn't see eye to eye, and Bettman said, "The heck with this. Uh, we're going to do our own thing." Just, I, I, I cannot believe that the good side of this is, and we had uh, Sarah Nurse and Renata Fast, two local, two of the local players who made the women's team. This is going to be great for the women's Olympic team. They are going to benefit, I think, so significantly from having basically no attention on the men whatsoever. It's going to be very similar, you know, in, in, in a different circumstance, but very similar to the attention that the Canadian women's soccer team yep. has had over the past, you know, decade or so, because the, the Canadian men's soccer team has really been, uh, you know, <laughs> dreadful uh, up until, you know, a couple of years ago where they kind of rebuilt the program and got some young talent. But a lot of the focus, a lot of the, the, the name recognition still resides with the women's team, whether it's Christine Sinclair uh, you know, any, any of the, the, the girls that uh, played in the Olympics and the World Cup that was here, uh, you know, in Canada a couple of years ago, they've made a name for themselves. So that, that's, you know, a huge bonus to them. 
for NHL guys. I mean, they're, they're millionaires. They're not going over there for the money. It's, it's purely for Canadian pride. And, you know, every player that uh, wants to play in the Olympics or has played in the Olympics wants to do it again. They love doing so. Uh, they love the competition, obviously, that the recognition is, is great, but it's it's for the country. And I think they just get a kick out of, you know, representing the, the red and white. Uh, tell me one fact about Jonathan Bloom. <laughs> He's got two O's in his life. No, it's actually B-L-U-M. <laughs> is it U-M? Yep. Uh, I can tell you he, he competed in the 2017 Deutschland Cup, uh, played two games wow. and registered an assist. So there's yeah. that. That's uh, it's enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let us move on from to a different kind of hockey to something far more, I think, upbeat. I'm 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 trying to figure out whether this is a good news story. I mean, it's a good news story, but whether this is good for the NHL or not. The team that is second overall in the NHL right now, and after tonight's game, could be two points out of first overall. The Vegas Golden Knights, an expansion team. Mm-hmm. Is this a good thing for the NHL? Because I can see both sides. Of this story, it's great, I suppose, for building interest in Vegas to be good right off the bat. But my goodness, what does it say about the league if a team that didn't exist twelve months ago is one of the best or is the best in the league? Well, you know, number one, I think it's a, it's a great story because you know everyone and and I I still think everyone kind of thinks in the back of their mind that you know the collapse is about to happen that you know reality is going to set in and you know they're an expansion team so they're supposed to be bad. Um, and I think that was, you know, the thought whenever there's just a collection of guys that are picked up off the scrap heap, because let's face it, these are, you know, a list of players that other teams either didn't want or, or didn't want because of, you know, salary reasons, uh, and they just couldn't keep them around. Um, I think it's a phenomenal story for not only the fact that it's Vegas, but, um, you know, whenever you have a collection of individuals who, uh, you know, come together for the first time, and taste success, but not only that, have been ultra successful for a couple of months now, and I think they're riding an eight-game winning streak. Yes, there could be uh, nine after tonight. Yeah, and not only that, but I mean, this is a team that has had, what, five or six different goalies now? I mean, they were dropping like flies there for, for a couple of weeks. Um, it, it's just an, an amazing story, and I think it also tells, a little bit at least, about some of the parity in the National Hockey League. There, There is some... Uh, to this extent, I didn't think there would be that much. I mean, you look at a team like the Buffalo Sabres, who have had you know a lengthy history compared to Las Vegas, that's for sure, but just can't seem to, never mind, get over that hump, even see the hump. Um, you know, uh, Arizona has been kind of in that boat. Whether they're bankrupt or just have a crappy team, you know, that's a franchise that just can't find its footing on and off the ice. And Vegas has been great uh, on both sides. And, uh, you know, kudos to George McPhee and uh, all the guys who, you know, pushed the buttons and made the moves and, you know, signing Jonathan Marsh's show to an extension was, I think, a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been a, I think, a, a, one of the highlights of the season. There's no doubt about it. And yet the funny part is here in Maple Leaf country, which we really are n- at least near enough to call ourselves that, we have heard nothing but how fantastic these young Leafs are. All this talent, all this offensive ability, all these great players. This is now the time that the Leafs are going to compete for a Stanley Cup. They're miles behind Vegas. It's amazing when you look at the standings to think that the Leafs that we have heard nothing but raves about now for two years are, they're not really even in the same ballpark right now. In term, Yeah, in terms of wins and points, uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're light years behind Vegas and they're light years behind the team that they played the other night in, in Tampa Bay. Uh, and another team in town tonight in San Jose is another, you know, really good team. But when you think of, you know, all the hype and, uh, you know, the uh, the expectations, certainly after last year in the playoff run, albeit short, but very exciting for Maple Leafs fans, uh, you know, having a top overall pick in, in Austin Matthews and, you know, some solid goaling, goaltending and, and then some from Frederick Anderson. I think there are still some weak points to this team. You know, the blue line obviously is is one. Uh, finding some secondary scoring, uh, which wasn't a problem earlier in the season, but has kind of cropped up from time to time for the blue and white is certainly a factor. I, I think just the, the pressure and the expectations and the, the I think the unexpected success that they tasted last year, I think it happened maybe too quickly and set this year's team up for expectations that were a little too high. 
But when you compare it to a team that has just come together for the first time, it's just remarkable to think. And, I mean, we can compare Vegas to the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are not even in the playoff yeah. picture. At least the Leafs are, you know, in the top three in their division. And Pittsburgh is staffing, you know, one of those kind of treading water type seasons, and we're all waiting for them to turn it on, just like we're all waiting for Vegas to collapse. Um, I guess we'll just see what happens uh, in, in the second half of the year. I know it was just a, a bit of a misspeak you had, but I liked it better when you referred to them as goaler. As a goaler, as opposed to a goaltending. <laughs> the goal, the, the goal, goaling. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the old school. Johnny Bauer just passed away, just had his funeral. He's a goaler. He's not a goaltender. Yeah. He's a goaler. That's the old yeah. school thing. All right, one last thing I want to get to, uh, and this sort of crosses all sports. But the NBA this year uh, is coming out with, well, they're doing something a little bit different. They don't have home and away jerseys now. Mm-hmm. They have association. Now, this is every team has a jersey that they're calling their association jersey. Everyone has an icon jersey. Everyone has a statement jersey. Everyone has a city jersey. And you also have opportunities for other ones. The Raptors, so the Raptors have all four of those. Plus, they've got one that's actually in Chinese lettering. Plus, they have their old school purple and white Raptors original one, plus they just came out with one, and I don't even know which one it falls into, that's black and gold that is in Drake's colors. Mm-hmm. Do you love the idea when teams start throwing out alternate jerseys every single day, or are you old school and like it when there's you know two, and then uh, once in a while we'll tease you with a new one, but w- which way do you go on this? I uh, I think you missed one too for the Raptors too. Don't they still have their 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 Toronto Huskies? Yes, the blue and white. You're right. Yep. So there's another one. Uh, I'm I'm on this topic. I'm very much old school on this one. I think the NBA. I know that what they're trying to do. You know, merchandising is, is obviously a huge commodity, uh, and the more jerseys that you can sell, obviously the more money that you're going to make. But I think teams uh, lose a little bit of their identity when you think of the major iconic sports brands, the Yankees, Red Sox, Celtics, Lakers, uh, Leafs, Habs, you know, these types of teams, uh, you you instantly know what they're going to be wearing or what their logo is, what their team colors are. When you start mixing in city and association and uh, you know, legend and all these other you know, different scenarios, I think you kind of muddy the waters, and I, I know a lot of them still have their same colors, but there are variations here and there. You know, the Raptors, you know, black and gold one is, is uh, you know, a perfect example. That I think from the standpoint of those fans who are not hardcore, they're going to look at, uh, you know, their TV set and think, who the heck's playing? I don't know either of these teams until they look at, you know, the scroll and say, all right, it's, you know, Sacramento against Minnesota. I mean, it, it, I think that's it's too much. Have two jerseys or two uniforms, and maybe an alternate once in a while. And I think you uh, still, you know, encapsulate what that team represents and what it's all about. Uh, some of these are, I got to be honest, they are um, ugly. Well, they are definitely ugly, and they are pushing the bounds of completely goofy. Cleveland, for example, you know what's on the now? These are the. Which ones are these now? These are the city editions. So you can pretty much... Are, yeah. So Cleveland is the land. The land, right? yeah. It yeah. says the land on the front, not Cleveland, <laughs> because, you know, Cleveland is so much to say that right. you got to shorten it to the land so you can save time for other things like making fun of LeBron going bald or something. I don't know what, you, I mean, what you're going to do with your time, but yeah, the land... It's seems, funny because it's, st- it's still two syllables. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I know, but uh, Detroit has Motor City on the front. Well, at least that makes sense. Um, Golden State just says the Bay. Yeah. Um, trying to see some of the other ones here. The Pacers, Indianapolis or Indiana Pacers. Man, are those ugly? I mean, yeah, some of these. Yeah. The other thing is they look just atrocious. They look. I, I just. I don't. I don't. I. I understand exactly, Rick. You're right. It's all about marketing. It's all about selling jerseys, but. Don't you? I guess there's a certain point when, if you can make them ugly enough, they actually become kind of cool. If they become stupid enough, you might actually want to get one. Kind of like the old creamsicle Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That it, it, it's yes. almost it's almost cool to wear that now. I, I I think that you know if you're a fan, let's just say you're you're a fan of the you know Houston Rockets, and you have five jerseys that you're eyeballing. Uh, maybe they're banking on okay. Jersey sales are down. Let's let's unleash five uniforms, and you know fans gonna at least like one of these five. 
but you'd have to think that the cost of making them is <laughs> is going to outweigh the cost of you know, the fan want to buying more than one. I mean, I, I just think it, it misses the mark. Do you remember the old Houston Astros uh, uniforms that had various different colors of yellow and brown yeah. on them? Yeah. That is Utah. Utah's uh, new city one, the Utah Jazz, which it has nothing to do with jazz apparently, actually looks like one of those, when you go to get paint at, at Home Depot or whatever and you get those cards with the different <laughs> the shades, yeah. that's what it looks like. It looks like a paint sample. Uh, Washington on the front just says the district, the district, because that's way cooler than Washington. Yes. Uh, I don't know. I think you and I may just be getting old school or old fashioned. I don't know what it is, but... I, 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 it seems they're trying to make them as stupid as possible. There's, a, there's an effort to be as ridiculous as possible because if it's that ridiculous, people will talk about them. Yeah, you know, the only thing I can think of is, you know, let's try and be as urban as possible, as, as maybe non-Jersey as possible. Yeah, we still have to stick a number and a name and, and perhaps an abbreviation of a city or, or whatever the case is. And people will say, "Okay, it's it, it's different, so let's let's get it." Um, I, I don't know. To me, I, I I'd much prefer I'd much prefer to see Boston green against L.A. You know, Lakers yellow, and I'm and I'm good. You're going with the urban for Utah. <laughs> <laughs> see again, well, I don't want to sound Utah, this. That might be urban. Yeah. Well, th- see again, and you make a good point. I mean, there is a point to this that in some of these places, I get it that we are also talking about urban culture and yeah. hip hop culture and that kind of thing. And so, uh, you know, okay, I get that. That's probably not yours and my style we're not wearing the flat hats off to the side i mean that's you know there's it's okay everyone's allowed to have their different taste and some of these things i clearly see that that would be the target some of them these some of these though i just have no clue they're just really ugly and really stupid and but you know what they'll probably be the best sellers well i'm 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 interested to see at the end of the year a which which jerseys are the best sellers and b which were those jerseys belong to i mean if if it is a uh, you know a team like I don't know, Portland's, that, that's going to be a, a huge question mark to me to say, hey, you know, what did they do right there and what did everybody else do wrong? Uh, why aren't they the land? Yeah, what are, what are they, the port? Uh, <laughs> They're a wine? They, uh, <laughs> that would actually be great. It's a nice Beaujolais. Uh, Rick Zamprin, uh, you can catch him tomorrow morning on as Bill Kelly, playing the role of Bill Kelly, the understudy in as the role of Bill Kelly. You should it's do a some wonderful life. Yeah. Uh, you should do some singing, like do make it a musical theater for Bill Kelly's show for this week. <laughs> Set the bar so when Bill comes back, he actually has to sing his show. That would be cool. Wow, wow! I'll take that under uh, advisement. You could sing "Bring Him Home" Friday for your last show. Do the Les Mis "Bring Him Home" to welcome <laughs> Bill back. I'll sing it. I'll sing my way tomorrow. And then, uh... <laughs> Rick Zaprin, he'll be on here at nine o'clock tomorrow morning with again all kinds of stuff. It's been a great show this week. It always is, even when Bill's here. Even when Thanks. Bill's here, right? Even when Bill's here, yeah. you're doing a great job, Rick. Thanks for doing this. Thanks. Take care. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from six to eight on nine hundred CHML.